This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. It made me realize what a fragile machine we are and also what a fascinating machine we are. I don't wish a stroke on anyone, but to suffer it is an extraordinary privilege because it allows you an insight into the workings of your own brain, which is something that medieval theologians said was God's only impossibility to observe himself and somehow we common mortals receive this gift of thinking about us thinking of watching thought forming itself. It was an extraordinary experience. What techniques can you use to make people fall in love with you? Or where can we find the secret of happiness? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill, wishing you all a very happy New Year. On this week's show, philosopher and writer Martin Cohen offers thought-provoking life lessons drawn from the writings of the great philosophers to offer not only tips on life's eternal questions, but a tasty entree into philosophy too. And the Buenos Aires-born author of The Library at Night, Alberto Manguel, talks me through his 40,000 books and his understanding of the fragility of life. This is a show about words and coherence, ideas and insight, philosophy and applicability. But first, would you like to taste my grapes? How to live, love and eat wise and not so wise advice from the great philosophers with philosopher and environmentalist Martin Cohen. Martin Cohen is a best-selling writer of popular books in philosophy, social science and politics. His notable reads include Essentials of Philosophy and Ethics, 101 Ethical Dilemmas, No Holiday, 80 Places You Won't Want to Visit, Political Philosophy from Plato to Mao and An Anti-History of Great Philosophers entitled Philosophical Tales. Martin's latest collection, How to Live, How to Eat, How to Love, has just been published by the Media Studies Unit and offers readers practical advice on how to act like a philosopher, talk like a philosopher, outrage people like a philosopher, eat like a philosopher, make love like a philosopher, run your business like a philosopher, preach like a philosopher and die like a philosopher. Oh yes, lots of robust advice from giants such as Cicero, Socrates and Plato. Martin says, in the past philosophy was a practical guide to everyday life and philosophers were the go-to experts in everything. And it is only recently that philosophy has been represented as something to do with ontology and essences, categorical imperatives and suppressed premises. Well, over the weekend, I gave Martin a call at his home in Normandy and I put it to him, do we have too much critical thinking? and less doing. Let's take a listen. I'm sympathetic to the idea that there's too much of an emphasis on intellectual processes and, and there are other ways of 
dealing with the world. There is the way that you empathise with other people, social intelligence, and what's sometimes called emotional intelligence, all of which sort of has ended up being an opposite camp. The philosophers who sit there surrounded by logic, denouncing, and they're often, as you say, failing to take any decisions at all because they've refined the issues to the point that it's no longer relevant, and also it's taken a very long time. So I'm sympathetic to that. But on the other hand, we only need to look around us, and whenever you see a decision that you don't agree with, you want to look at the arguments that were put forward, and you want to test the, the reasoning, and then you end up... In in effect, going back to philosophical processes, sort of Socratic dialogue is not as redundant as all that. Now, you've brought out a series on how to live, love and how to eat like a philosopher. Mm. And it's hugely accessible. And you're, mm. you're illustrating how relevant philosophy and philosophers are to contemporary life. I've been writing on philosophy for quite a long time now. And I've always started from the position that what was normally treated as philosophy wasn't real philosophy. So in a sense, I'm trying to present an alternative view of what philosophy is. And for example, if we take the How to Eat book, which is like a little mini book, I found it interesting as I researched the book to see that the big famous names in philosophy have all talked and thought about things which are very practical, like um, what sort of food is good to eat and why is it good for you to eat it. And indeed, some of them even talk about the practical things, even down to the level of which ingredients, which combinations of food. And when I looked at it, there's a very good reason why philosophers would look at that, because it's an unbroken line all the way back to the beginnings of philosophy, our, our focus on diet and the links between what we eat and how we construct society. So how to eat I saw as a, as a sort of different way of looking at all the philosophical questions. And it's interesting, you know, you very much chart the big names in philosophy through the years. Like we have Plato's noble cakes, Rousseau's rocket salad, David Hume's sheep's head broth. Yeah. I was quite surprised at all of that. One, I'm a vegetarian and have been for 25 years. Right. And I had this kind of leafy, waffly, probably very aesthetic view of a lot of great thinkers as a lot of great vegetarians. So presumably I've got it all wrong. I think there's probably quite a lot of philosophers who are vegetarians, although by no means the majority, but probably relative to the society. Partly the reasoning would be that there is a very strong tradition which goes back to what they call the pre-Socratics, that people before Plato and Socrates, who are the most famous of the Western philosophers. Before the Western philosophy, there was Eastern philosophy. And, and all these people had strong views on meat and whether it was right to kill animals. And the, the Indian tradition is that the animals contain our souls. The souls of people can be reborn as animals, or that, that whole tradition. And vegetarianism has um, this sort of significance for many people, including myself. I eat fish and things. But there are so many arguments when you look at the production of anything in food. I was just looking at something on ice cream. And ice cream should be a very simple food, which is made of eggs and milk. And nowadays, it's not. It's made in a factory out of all sorts of chemicals. And when you say, I want to eat natural food in this inverted commas sense, you're saying something quite profound. And you're talking about your relationship to the environment and your respect for other living things. And, and so I find it sort of difficult to separate the eating question from all the other ethical questions. And I wouldn't want to. I don't know how, what your perspective is on vegetarianism. Well, I would see that, you know, that there is great dialogue in the Buddhist community yeah. on food and also gives great insights into why we eat, how we eat, and what we should be eating. There's the sort of ecological ideas, which I, I think increasingly are subtle, 
That is to say that, for example, certain kinds of vegetarianism, veganism, for example, I don't really think has, is good for the environment. I think if people want to fit into the natural world, we do need to eat milk and dairy products and this is a sort of a great ambiguity in the thing that it seems to involve cruelty in a sense and killing at some point but to not do it would shift an awful lot of resources towards growing sort of strange things like soya at the expense of the, of the environment um, for example if we didn't eat fish all that food would have to be replaced somehow and put great pressure on on the land so in terms of this environmental perspective i tend to, to go for weak vegetarianism whereas in terms of the buddhist principle you, you seem to end up with a very sort of um, rigid refusal to do most things including you might worry about almost worry about bacteria being killed but i suppose religion and philosophy are in two entirely different things and if philosophy is built around logic and rational argument mm. or not and maybe you can point to to religion, which is developed through cultural practices as much as its thinking part. They're entirely different beasts. Well, Sue, I mean, the religious arguments are there. I'm not sure that they are quite so different, you see. The the difference tends to be with the people who follow the the argument. So in in a religious context, you, you say, I don't know, but I'm just following the advice. And in the philosophical frame, you are supposed to know the reasons. Even within the Catholic Christian tradition, they have all these experts who are producing sound reasons and logical structures to support their positions. So to some extent, I think it's a little bit of the philosophers tend to to paint the theologians as not using arguments. Personally, I think it's it's not true. The theologians do have arguments, and they are not so different from this kind that the philosophers are advancing. Or indeed the scientists, they're all roughly in the same area when it comes down to it. One of the three in the series is how to love. Wise and not so wise advice from the great philosophers. And you have great stuff. Aristotle's simple philosophy is love thyself. We have the very rational and pragmatic and a bit grim Locke who said marriage is a legal mechanism useful for bringing up children. And then you have some other very interesting stuff. Some of it is a bit intense and others is a bit more lightweight. You know, you've everything from Freud down to the very heavy Kant stuff. Can you talk to me about what you've learned about love? Because it's quite a tricky experience to navigate, whether you're the greatest philosopher in the world or you're just your normal happy camper. Yes. Well, again, uh, we have this view of philosophy as the structure of arguments and abstract exercises. But in actual fact, all the great philosophers seem to have had written serious documents and thought a long time about not only love, but let's be clear, they also talk about sex a lot. And it's not at all silly stuff that they're doing. It is quite serious stuff and it it makes as much sense as it ever did. And one of the people who I particularly like is the French philosopher Rousseau, whose writings are absolutely contemporary. You you wouldn't think that they were written what they were three or four hundred years ago because it sounds, um, it could be something that you read in a magazine today. And it's good advice, I think. As you mentioned, some of the other people, their advice, well, we do hesitate like Kant I think would be a good example of someone who gave and he did he actually wrote he had a lot of women pen friends and he gave them advice on love and indirectly on sex well in fact it was direct in a sense he he said to abstain from all sexual activity. Kant was a very conflicted character anyway it strikes me that romance didn't come easy for Kant for the type of man that he was there were a lot of barriers and least of all was his idea or ability to fall in love but I might get you to quote some Rousseau because there's some lovely turn of phrase from Rousseau 
in your book. Can I just say on Kant, which you're absolutely right about him being conflicted, because I wrote another book called Philosophical Tales, and I looked, one of the tales was about Kant, and it was about how amazingly obsessed he was about little details. Like, there are people we, who we, we know who have things like it might be this ornament must be kept on this particular position on this shelf, and they get very agitated if it's not... Kant was the kind of person who applied that approach that everything had one possible place and everything followed a rule. He's a highly respected philosopher, and when he proclaims on things like sex or love, he's taken seriously, but I'm not sure he should be because his actual background is he seems to be uh, no more logical than the person who keeps returning to their house to check whether they turn the lights off. He's that sort of a neurotic in a way and you, you do feel that when you look at his views on love. Now, and there lies the key, Martin, because mm. you, really there are no rules to love. Yes, uh, I mean, it's like a kaleidoscope, isn't it? There's so many possible things and when he does it, it's like there's a straight line and everything at the other side of the line out. Literally, it's the black and white thing, you know. And in fact, he drew the line at this very odd point, which is basically that the correct relationship was the uh, so-called platonic one, you know, no physical contact at all. And which is he, dreadfully boring, really, when you think about it. <laughs> well, he, he's lost the point, hasn't he? Uh, and he, 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 he seems to have lost the point on quite a lot of things. He wouldn't travel, for example. He wouldn't change what he ate. He always ate the same thing. And it's surprising when you think about Kant because he's heralded as one of the greatest philosophers ever. He does a huge amount of thinking and analysing and critiquing, but he really did absolutely no living. We say that. And then again, I, I should qualify it slightly because within his very rigid daily routine, he had these quite elaborate dinners. I think they were in the middle of the day. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, he allowed within his daily routine one period, which was for what we might call entertainment, which was structured around eating, but in this very limited range of foods, and a range of conversation. It would be like the posh dinner tables, telling jokes which involve lots of Latin, that sort of stuff. But within his own terms, this was quite uproarious, and they, they all had a, a good time. Schopenhauer was very different. Like, he was a very different breed of man. They're both German, they're yes. both philosophers. They lived pretty much around the same time, yet completely different animals. Can you tell me a bit about Schopenhauer? Because he was very proactive to put it mildly. Yes. Well, within philosophy, as I'm sure you'll have come across, Kant is like a great giant, very respected and much studied. There's two philosophers in philosophy. It'll be Plato and Kant. He's probably the number two a giant figure. But Schopenhauer, he's often not on any courses. He's not on people's bookshelves. He's not mentioned. And yet, I think he's actually a much more important philosopher. And he's had this huge influence on everything we understand. The thing he came up with, which is in this How to Love book, is he came up with the idea that when we have loving relationships, what's going on, he argues, is that we are being propelled by our bodies, our genetic programming, to reproduce. And the love feeling of romance and all that is a sort of tool that biology propagating itself, which is nowadays we associate this with a very modern scientific theory called the selfish gene. But in fact, Schopenhauer came up with that several hundred years quicker than the scientists. And it's interesting, he spelt it out very precisely and he gave good reasons for why that was the case. That the whole thing of being conscious and romantic is, is it has a biological function, which is rather depressing. And that is Schopenhauer. He is a depressing person, but I think very, very important to 
to look at what he says and he isn't looked at at all. And I was wondering what about mm. Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher? Mm, mm. He's a really interesting guy. How come you didn't look at Kierkegaard? No, you're right. He's an odd person out. He doesn't need to be presented, you see. I, I'm a popularizer. But Kierkegaard, unlike almost all the other philosophers, he writes in a fun and interesting way. So it seems a bit like, yes, you could present his views, but they don't need to be presented. And secondly, in his own personal life, like so many of the philosophers, it's a tragedy. His love life was absolutely sad, and he could have had a very fine relationship, and he didn't have it. He messed it up with some worrying and abstracting and so forth. And he both destroyed his own life, and perhaps he destroyed other people's life around him. So in a way, I didn't want to go into that because I liked the man. <laughs> he's, a, he's such a nice philosopher in many ways, but it's such a, a negative feature of his writing. And so I left him out, yes. I would love yeah. a bit of Russo because, yeah. you know, going through all three books on how to live, how to love and how to eat like a philosopher in the series, mm. there's some amazing lines from him. And your book has really is now encouraging me to go back to Rousseau and yes. see what I missed out on. No, the same for me. When, when I studied philosophy and when I read, I've read an awful lot of introductions and encyclopedias, he, he's often pushed to the edge. It's like Schopenhauer, but actually had such very influential politically and socially his ideas. He should be a much more studied. Plus, in the case of Rousseau, he, he's a very witty and humane writer. So if I, if I just give you a snippet then, he's describing his uh, life with Teresa. Teresa, in conventional philosophy books, is sneered at because she was a servant and also she wasn't very pretty. Rousseau describes her in such a, a different way, in such a human way. So this is what he says. He says about our little suppers at my window, seated opposite each other upon two little chairs, placed upon a trunk, which filled up the space of the enclosure. In this situation, the window served as a table. We breathed the fresh air, enjoyed the prospect of the environs and the people who passed beneath us. And although upon the fourth story of the building, we looked down into the street as we ate. He's talking about little suppers, the two of them, in this poor area of France. And nothing special, but he's pointed... And the food often wasn't special. He recommends having cheese sandwiches. It's the sort of little thing that you can imagine. I don't find hardly anything like that in any of the other philosophers. But Martin, it's his humility that he has it totally right. He appreciates the, you know, the extraordinary yes. and the ordinary. And it's those simple moments that really is how we live. Those simple moments is how we love, how we breathe. Yeah. And that really is it. It doesn't need to be that convoluted. He has the emotional intelligence, in fact. A lot of the philosophers are clearly very, very clever, but they're not clever in an emotional sense, as he actually is. He obviously had problems because he, he's rightly mocked for producing children who he didn't look after but simply took to a foundling home and abandoned. So he, he's often painted as a very wicked person. Indeed, he did, he did do wicked things. He wrote a book called The Confessions in which he admitted all the wicked things he did, including he lied about another servant that he wanted to have a relationship with and she wasn't interested. So when he'd done something bad in the household, he made sure the servant, this woman's servant, got the blame and she got sacked and it was probably a personal disaster. So he was a rogue. He's known to be a rogue, but he, he's a very human figure. And, and I he, suppose that's what we need, Martin, from yeah. our philosophers, from our great thinkers. We yeah. need more humane thinking because it's all well and good to have these very sophisticated ideas and be a very critical thinker and to be able to present these wonderfully thought-provoking rational arguments on a certain aspect of life. But yeah. if we don't have the humane within it and the, you know, that lived experience of life, 
well then it's all rather empty. That the whole edifice is too grand, isn't it? The thing of the great philosopher itself, it says like they're above the rest of humanity. But if they're above the rest of humanity, what, what have they got to say to the rest of humanity? But it's a tricky tightrope there. Mm. Of all the philosophers, who do you think really got it right? Who do you oh, think well, really yeah. had the smarts? <laughs> Not just socially, but emotionally, psychologically, temperamentally, in every sense, who really got it right and who really lived? Oh, you've got me there. <laughs> I, I quite like Socrates. There, no one really knows what he was like, you see. Um, there's lots of different views of him. But from what I've can see of him. He lived a very simple life. Like quite a lot of the, these are very ancient Greeks. They said, well, we're not going to bother with all the material things, but we just like to have enough to live. And we will spend our time not so much talking in abstract, but actually talking to shed light and to lead their societies, influence their societies in what they felt were positive directions. And I, I think in the case of Socrates, he was quite a, he was an impressive figure. He, he's often treated a little bit like a sort of Christ-like figure because he took this poison potion at the end of his life. It may even not be true, that story. No one really knows with Socrates. So I find some of these, these oldest philosophers are, are the ones that seem to speak more than the more recent ones, if you see what I mean.
And that was philosopher and environmentalist Martin Cohen. The How to Live series is published by the Media Studies Unit and makes for very entertaining reading. I particularly liked the How to Love and How to Live books. Very handy to dip into this time of year. When we're all asking ourselves those big, impossible, juicy questions. Okay, coming up next, the Casanova of reading, Alberto Manguel. But first, let's take a bit of a break. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you pop me an email at talkingbooksandnewstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you, really lovely. So off you go and don't be shy. Okay, let's now move into a very sublime space, the uses of reading. Alberto Manguel is an Argentine-born Canadian anthologist, translator, essayist, novelist and editor and the owner of over 40,000 books. Yes, you heard right. He's got 40,000 books. Born in Buenos Aires in 1948, he's the author of numerous non-fiction books, such as The Dictionary of Imaginary Places, A History of Reading, The Library at Night, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, A Biography, and novels such as News from a Foreign Country Came. Alberto believes that the activity of reading in its broadest sense defines our species. He says, We come into the world intent on finding narratives in everything. Landscape, the skies, the face of others, the images and the worlds that our species create. Reading our own lives and those of others. Reading the societies we live in and those that lie beyond our borders. Reading the worlds that lie between the covers of a book are the essence of a reader. So you won't be surprised to know that Alberto has strong views on technology and he believes electronic media has its own particular problems. He says every change of instrument implies a change of action, but not perhaps in the way we imagine. E-books, virtual libraries, iPads allow us to read in ways we never read before. We can now carry whole libraries in our pocket and from our own bedroom we can access volumes ensconced in the remotest libraries. And yet... Sophisticated readers complain that the new gadgets don't have the sensual qualities of the printed book, the erotic touch, the comforting smell, that they lack the hierarchical distinctions that used to exist between paperbacks and hardbacks, that they have none of the aristocratic features of leather binding and marble end paper pages. Well, a few months ago, I got the opportunity to spend a remarkable afternoon with Alberto. I asked him, about his relationship with libraries and his book, The Library at Night. After I had written A History of Reading, where I mention our relationship to libraries, to collecting, and to different aspects of the life of a reader, I decided that perhaps a whole book on our relationship with libraries would be interesting and Uh, So I wrote The Library at Night. The title comes from the fact that I have the sense that spaces change throughout the day and our relationship to a particular space like the library changes from night to day. 
During the day, the order of a library is visible, is evident. We know where everything stands and we follow that order. But at night, in the gloom, and I particularly like libraries that are dimly lit, the books that impose themselves on us are the ones that are caught in that cone of light by chance and the fact that we are alone in the dark, lit only by that cone of light allows us to concentrate on more magical relationships between the reader and the book. And so I wanted to explore what that relationship might be. Can you tell me, Alberto, about your own library? You have some 40,000 books in a converted barn in the south of France. That sounds so exotic in one way and so wonderfully indulgent and exquisite in another. But I imagine it has been quite a journey also. I suppose if it were a wine cellar with 40,000 bottles, you wouldn't find it so surprising. The truth is that it's not a library. It's an accumulation of many libraries, libraries that I have collected over a long life and that I never had uh, the space to keep in one home. When I settled in France 15 years ago, I found this house with an old barn that needed rebuilding And there, at last, was the space for the books. And walking through that space, it must bring huge memories, remind you different experiences in your own life, and how you've changed also as a reader. Libraries are places of memory. They are the archives of our communal experience and our individual experience. It is not by chance that the most famous of libraries, the Library of Alexandria, was located in the House of the Muses in the Museum of Alexandria. And as we know, the mother of the Muses is the goddess of memory. Every library falls under that shadow, and I know that in my library there is, on the one hand, the memory of the cultures that have produced the different books, but my own individual memory associated with the volumes that I have read. I have not, of course, read the 40,000. But then there are books that you acquire to read them or to reread them, but there are many that you acquire to flip through or just to keep for the right moment, just to keep as a reference books are extremely patient they wait for us would it be fair to say that for you books are about friendship they're about company their relationship they're i suppose a, a lifeblood in ways a reader establishes relationships with books and establishes friendships with books and enmities with books. But we mustn't forget that uh, the book is an inanimate thing. It's a bunch of sheets of paper with ink stains on it and we mustn't uh, idolize it or transform it into something that it's not. We as readers give that object life. We create both the friend and the relationship with a book. And throughout our life, 
we choose different books that are markers uh, of our passage, and some of them accompany us throughout our life. In, in, in my case, Alice in Wonderland or the essays of Chesterton or Don Quixote have been companions up to this day. Others we loved when we were children, but uh, we abandoned later on only to rediscover them in old age. I am rereading now The Fairy Tales of Grimm. And then there are others that um, we don't open until we are much older now. I'm 66 years old and I started reading Dante only 10 years ago, but I read Dante every morning, every morning one canto until I have done the round and then start again. And it is a purifying intellectual exercise for me. You can grow into a book and a book maybe hits you in different ways at different stages of your life. So it's part of your emotional development that we can read a book in our 30s and find it a little bit empty or find it maybe too thought-provoking ways. But through the rich experience of life, we can fully digest its beauty and be transformed by it in some way when we get a little bit older. Or not, as the case might be. (laughs) We will open it uh, several times and not like it and then give up and that's perfectly fair as well. But our taste change because we change, and as we change, our friendships change, our tastes, dislikes, likes change. Uh, when I was an adolescent and read Homer for the first time, I much preferred the Odyssey to the Iliad because it was full of adventure. Mm-hmm. Now as an old man, it is the Iliad that I treasure. And what about books that disappoint, books that frustrate, books that end badly? If a book starts badly, I very rarely give it a chance for more than a page or two. I don't feel obliged to finish a book that I start. And if I get to the end and the book I find ends badly, ends badly for me, that is, it is that there have been interesting things in the book that have made me want to continue. And and, and that's good enough. But Alberto, I can go to a movie and walk out of a movie. I did that actually last week. I was very disappointed with one, just walked out. What a waste of time. Somehow when I have a book, there is an intimacy And when reading a book that, whatever the story, you fight at that relationship almost. You struggle along with it because it's so much more an intimate experience. But just because it is an intimate experience, you should be much more ready to kick it out of bed. You wouldn't tolerate a bad lover for more than five minutes, would you? But sometimes we can breathe with a bad lover. I'm not that patient with either lovers or books. And what about the big questions in books? And where have they taken you through the years? You've read so many. You've made quite a career of reading and writing and reflecting on books. What have been the big questions and the big ideas? What has most fascinated you through the years? Or do you think we can still look forward to new ideas in books? Or do you think everything that's been said has been written? I can't think of any particular questions. What interests me in literature is that it always keeps asking questions and forcing you to ask better questions. That is what moves thought along. Of course, there will be new questions asked always, but at the root, 
they are concerned all with the same subject, which is the universe and the life in it. Uh, we cannot ask beyond what we already know, except that we don't know we know it, and literature helps us put into words those secret desires and those intimate fears. And what about when the words are translated? Translation is the deepest form of reading because the translator needs to take the work apart, see how it works, and then put it together with other instruments. We forget that it is translation what we read when we read world literature unless we speak all the languages. But when we say that we are familiar with Don Quixote and the work of Dostoevsky and the Greek playwrights and the Roman classics, unless we speak Latin, ancient Greek, Russian and Spanish, we are reading the work of translators. And the wonderful thing about translation is that it lends the work a sort of modest immortality because it allows the original to rejuvenate itself with the words of the translator in each successive version. A culture that does not honor translation is a dead culture, and it is to the lasting shame of the English language that only 3% of everything that's got published in English is translated compared to 50% in France or 80% in Holland. Alberto, I read recently about your stroke and how you focused in on language and words and how it rehabilitated you in some way and how you lent on language and words and expression and the joy of books. And it became something very important to you and how you tracked your healing through all of this and how you were able to track the milestones in your recovery. Can you tell me about this experience and how books and words and language and expression shaped that experience? <clears throat> I want to say that the experience was frightening, but above all, it was interesting. I suddenly discovered, I was trying to write a note, that I couldn't find the words. And I thought, my goodness, I'm so tired that I can't manage to write a sentence. And I went back into the house and was unable to tell my partner what was happening. But the ambulance arrived very quickly and I was in the hospital half an hour later. But throughout the time that I was unable to put my thoughts into words, I was able to reflect on the relationship between thought and words because I had always imagined that we were unable to think outside words, that language we used enabled us to create thoughts and in fact dictated our thoughts. And here I found myself in a situation where the thoughts were there but the verbal structure of those thoughts as a dress that covered them was not there, the thoughts were utterly 
naked, and that when I tried to dress them, try to grab the words, I felt as if I was plunging my hand in a fishbowl and the fish were swimming away before I could catch them. It was extraordinary to see in my mind the process failing because as usually happens when something fails, you begin to notice how it works. And for instance, I noticed that I was unable when I began to speak again to say anything in the negative. The nurse would ask, do you feel pain? And I wanted to say, no, I don't. And the words would come out as, I feel pain. What I realized was happening was that when we express a negation, our mind constructs the thought of I feel pain and lays over it the negative no and it's almost instantaneous so you express it as I don't feel pain but when the process is slowed down or as in my case the neural path gets ruptured what happens is that the thought expresses itself in the affirmative and then after that the negative appears but dissociated from the affirmative and it's fascinating to watch it that whole experience must change how you look at life how you look at everything how you read how you understand information ideas it made me realize what a fragile machine we are and also what a fascinating machine we are i don't wish a stroke on anyone but to suffer it is an extraordinary privilege because it allows you an insight into the workings of your own brain which is something that medieval theologians said was god's only impossibility to observe himself and somehow we common mortals receive this gift of thinking about us thinking of watching thought forming itself it was an extraordinary experience can i ask you about the future of books and the future in terms of reading books are you worried in any way about technology and the whole experience of a book or how a book is read or perceived through technology and how that changes the overall dynamic Technology doesn't worry me. I'm very proud of our technological inventions. What worries me is our use of technology. And as to the future of reading, that is included in the question of the future of humanity. Do we have any future? Scientists have given us a date by which, if things don't change drastically, our life on this planet is doomed. That's not science fiction. It's a scientific fact. And we continue to say, well, we can't make this change because we will lose jobs or the economy this or the economy that. And it is extraordinary to think that we're supposed to be rational human beings and we are saying the ship is sinking, but if I throw my luggage overboard, I won't have my party shoes for Christmas Eve. We are committing massive suicide. So in that context, the question of whether we will continue to read or not is part of this bigger, terrible one. Perhaps in the future, ants will learn to read and will be wiser than we have been.
And the three books on that sinking ship, if you had that choice. Chesterton, when he was asked what book he would take to a desert island, answered, How to Build a Raft. That was writer, editor and collector Alberto Manguel. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, I'm putting together a women and fiction special. So lots to look forward to there. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan and Kate McDonnell who helped out with this week's show and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end this week's show with an enlightening note from the Greek philosopher Zeno who once observed, everything in the world has a place that it occupies. If a thing moves, it must do so in the place where it is, or in a place where it is not. But nothing can move in a place where it already is, and nothing can it move in a place where it is not.
Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.